Krista Williams Collette, yeah. principal at City Impact Fund. Yeah. Thanks for being on the Epic Human Podcast. Thank you for having me. This is the first podcast I've done, so it's great to be here. Okay, don't worry. We'll be we'll be gentle. <laughs> It'll be very relaxed. Um, and uh, and shout out also to our mutual friend Kiana Patterson, yes. who introduced us originally yes. and uh, has also been a guest on the podcast. She's amazing. She is an epic human. So <laughs> I agree. I agree. Well, tip. You know, I totally agree. She's she's amazing. Um, would like to you know focus a little bit on you though today. Um, le learn more about you. Introduce uh, the audience to you. Um, so maybe to get started, you could tell us a little bit about uh, your work at a City Impact Fund. Yeah. So I'm an investor at the City Impact Fund. We are the double bottom line investing arm of City Ventures. So we sit on the City Ventures entity, which is Citigroup's venture capital investing unit. Uh, we're a $500 million fund. We started off as a $150 million fund and have grown over the past two and a half years to 500, all balance sheet capital. We um, focus on four primary areas. So sustainability, the future of work, financial inclusion, and social infrastructure, which for us includes healthcare, mobility, housing, and education as well. We do direct investments, uh, so seed stage onward, which Next year, we'll likely be moving even later, so around the Series A stage onward. Um, we also do fund-to-fund -fund investments as well. So we are in three funds currently, um, and we're looking to expand that effort next year. Great. And and do you typically lead, or do, or do you like to syndicate, or how does, how does that work usually? We rarely lead. Mm -hmm. So we've only led about three investments in our portfolio. Um, for the most part, we kind of join a, a really great syndicate we're excited about. Great, great. And um, just curious to your thoughts on, on impact kind of as a, as a phrase, like sure. um, broadly in the industry, right? It's historically had some uh, you know, concessionary type connotations. Um, but I like that you guys are taking that head on, right? And saying, Absolutely. hey, we can drive impact um, while also, you know, driving strong returns. So so maybe you could just explain that that, that thesis or kind of your views on how like impact investing can, can drive the strongest returns. Yeah. So for us, we are looking for venture scale returns first. And then we have this impact piece as well. So we use an impact framework through which we evaluate each of the companies that we invest in. So let's say it is a sustainability company that's focused on climate. We want to be able to measure reductions in carbon emissions. If we are focused on a future of work company, we want to be able to measure the number of people who have been able to increase their salaries or get access to jobs they otherwise would not have access to. So I would say for us, we see impact as an additional layer. We don't see it as a way to take cuts on returns. I will say there are some instances where we'll say, you know, this company may not be a 20x win for us. It may not even necessarily be a 10x uh, return for us, but we think it'll have meaningful impact. And we still think we will make it at least a decently attractive return on this particular investment. So uh, that's our approach. We are still refining it. One of the questions that we get very, very often is how we define impact and how we measure it uniformly across all of our investments. And as you probably know, you can't. You cannot measure impact at a healthcare company in the same way that you would at a fintech company. So we actively think about how we're going to measure each of our investments uniquely 
um, with the overarching theme that we want to affect uh, very specific communities over the long run. Mm. Run, excuse me. Mm. Mm. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, <clears throat> I think, it, uh, regardless of the nomenclature, you know, around you know, using impact or not using impact. Um, I, I mean, one thing I believe is that the companies that are driving real value for customers, communities, um, external stakeholders are going to be the companies that are most valuable into the future. Sure. And, um, and you know, not to, not to name, you know, specific companies, but I, I think what we've been seeing in the media just this past week or two has, has kind of shown that a lot of these, you know, uh, get rich quick type schemes or companies or industries um, that you know don't have a real customer don't have a real value proposition um, you know are are built on a, a foundation of sand right and, yeah. and they can they can go away very quickly so um, so I think what you're doing you know aligns you know very well with the types of things we invest in but maybe maybe you could tell us a little bit about um, you know, some of the some of the companies you've invested in that you've backed that you're really excited about? Sure. Uh, the most recent company we invested in is a company called Reapley. Uh, it falls within our sustainability vertical. Uh, so they affect or impact climate change by helping companies reduce excess inventory. So those particular companies don't necessarily have to throw away things like tables, chairs, et cetera, because they've ordered too many of them. So their customers are primarily people like Google, Amazon, et cetera. And what they help them do is focus on addressing redundancies in some of, um, in some of their inventory orders. And they also have a marketplace so that companies can sell excess inventory to each other and reduce the amount of waste that each of them has on hand. Hmm. So making better use of <clears throat> products that would otherwise be returned or or just held in storage somewhere. So it's generally not products. It's like um, let's say this this you owned this entire office building and you needed tables and chairs and phones, et cetera, in each of the offices within this office building. There's generally one person or a specific team that makes all of those orders. However, if you have access, you may not know it or realize it. So one of the things that Reaply solves for is that they have software that allows company to better monitor what they actually have on hand. It also enables them to return excess sooner so that it's just not sitting around or being tossed at some point in the future. And again, they have a marketplace where they can kind of offload excess pretty efficiently. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, any other companies you want to uh, call out or give a shout out to? Sure. There are a ton um, across our verticals. So I'll say one of the things, the start of venture capital investing at City was around fintech. So we're in several neobanks. We're in a company called Greenwood, which you may be familiar with. We're also in a company called Daylight, which is a neobank that serves the LGBTQ plus community. We're also in a company called Clerky. Um, we're in a company that was formerly called uh, Perch, which you may have heard of. Um, we're also in a company called Jetty, which is a company that makes renting much easier for the average person. So we believe that most people will actually not become homeowners over the long run for a number of reasons. And I'm happy to talk about that going forward. But just because someone is not a homeowner today does not mean that they can't be empowered to either increase their wealth or 
be given opportunity for socioeconomic mobility. So one of the things that Jetty does is it works with landlords and renters to, one, pay their security deposits for them so that renters can more easily access available apartments. And if for whatever reason that security deposit needs to be paid back, then the renter owes Jetty. It doesn't owe the landlord. Understood. Understood. And and tell me more about um, this this future of uh, a less owner, home ownership. What what are some of the fundamental drivers, and and what is that what is that going to look like? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it's something that we're still thinking about. One, it's more expensive to own a home than it ever has been. Um, when you think about how easily people were able to access home ownership even just a decade ago, certainly more than 50 years ago, you know, a lot of people um, were able to own homes by their mid-20s, early 30s. Today, the average person is buying a home in their 40s, which is very, very different. Um, and that's for high income, relatively high income individuals. Uh, just because someone can't access home ownership today does not mean that they don't need to be able to access housing. And also doesn't mean that they can't still be put on a path to home ownership over the long run. So for example, if someone is going to have to now spend $5,000 or $6,000 on a security deposit that puts them back a bit on the savings front or the investing front. So if your long-term goal is to make sure that people are becoming more financially secure, you need to have a solution that addresses things like that. Now, when you look at the average apartment, one bedroom apartment in a place like New York City or a place like San Francisco, it's $4,500 or $5,000. If your security deposit is two months rent, how many people today have $9,000 or $10,000 to pay a landlord upfront in addition to the rent they need to pay before they move in? We know that the average person doesn't even have $1,000 in emergency savings or emergency capital. So how, how difficult is it for the average person to access housing given, given the cost it is to simply move in? So that's something that we think about a lot. And companies like Jetty are able to cover that upfront cost. If the entirety of the security deposit cannot be returned because maybe the tenant somehow ruined the apartment, et cetera, um, before they leave, Jetty will make the landlord whole. And that person then has to pay Jetty back. They don't have to necessarily pay back the landlord themselves. So it just, we think a lot about making people's lives easier right. and putting them in a position to, again, be empowered to be mobile, socially and economically. Right, right. And kind of reducing those barriers and <clears throat> um, increasing the speed of those on-ramps to these kind of major financial um, milestones, let's say, in their life. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a, there's a, Interesting. I'm just. I, I just just came to mind. But um, my sister-in-law lives in Germany, <clears throat> and they have a government program that I, I I think is just fascinating on this topic, which is, um, and I, I'm not even sure if it's like a government program or if it's a private company. But basically, the model is you uh, you there's this community, there's th these buildings, right, um, that have up many apartments, multi, multi-family apartments. Sure. And the idea is <clears throat> you apply to the community to try to, you know, get access to it. You, I, I believe there's some sort of a upfront payment, right? I'm not sure how the scale or whatnot, but think of it like 
maybe on scale on you know the same magnitude as a um, down payment, and and then you you basically lock in your rent right um, at a at a flat flat rent that never goes up right, and but the idea is. <clears throat> it's somewhere in between renting and ownership because you don't technically own it, but at the same time, you can you can be there, you know, for, for your whole life if you want, and you can pass it on to your children as well, right? Very cool. And uh, but the idea is, if you leave, then you you know, it's it's not something you own, so you just you just leave. And um, it basically is, is doing something similar in terms of like lowering those barriers. And like creating kind of a third door for for people who, you know, the renting isn't working for them, or or they want to graduate from renting, but home ownership, you know, they live in Munich, which is a very another very expensive city. Yes. Um, so it's it seems like there's a couple ways to go about that. But have you ever heard of anything like that in the states? Because I, I really haven't. So I know there's a lottery system. I remember that was very much a thing in New York. You could apply for a lottery and you could get access to affordable housing to either rent or own. You might not find out if you won the lottery for up to three years, but you could get uh, you, you could get access to below market rate housing that you could actually own. So it wasn't just renting, but there were renting opportunities as well. There's also BMR housing in San Francisco, and as you may have seen on the ballot relatively recently, um, there's a lot of advocacy for a bit more of that. Um, what I have not seen is the opportunity to pass that housing on to future generations, which I think is really compelling and, and something I would love to spend more time on. I've not seen that type of model or, or scheme in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think what's exciting <clears throat> is just that, whereas it used to be just these two options, right? Now what entrepreneurs and founders are exploring is like, how do we, how do we create win-wins in that gray middle zone? Um, so that, that's exciting. And, and what do you think about, um, you know, post-pandemic, the, the kind of drive towards remote work, towards like more, you know, different areas of the country, not everyone having to live in the you know, in the big cities, like, what are your thoughts on that? It's interesting because a lot of people did move out of big cities during the pandemic. A lot of people also got really nice homes in cities that they didn't have to work in during the pandemic. But as you've probably seen, um, one, I think a lot of people realize that owning a home comes with a lot. It's not just paying the mortgage. So that's also become relatively expensive for a lot of people that that are in the earlier parts of their journeys, um, of their careers and, and just life journeys overall. I would say um, a few things to consider. One, a lot of companies have realized that that model won't necessarily work over the long term. It's not necessarily sustainable. So even for us, we do have, we're very much back in the office for the most part, more so in New York City, uh, less so in, in San Francisco because it's a little bit of a different place. But overall, we, we are expected to be back in the office at least three days a week. That's very difficult if you've moved to an entirely different state. So I, I would say over the long run, um, I think a lot of people are going to realize that in some ways that, that may have actually limited their opportunities. But 
I think um, on the other hand, for people who kind of are committed to either the freelance economy or just never going back into the office, it enables people to access affordable housing more readily than than they've ever had the opportunity to before. Right, right. And of course, we've had Twitter, you know, Elon famously saying, hey, everyone needs to be back in the office. Yeah. Um, I think there's a bunch of big uh, financial institutions that have said the same thing in New York and other places. Absolutely. So, so that's, you know, whereas I think we, we, we had originally thought or, you know, some of us hoped that <clears throat> this um, remote revolution would, would kind of be a one-way street. It seems like it's bifurcating now and, and um, there's pushback against it, probably for some good reason. You know, we actually now, even though we're a geographically distributed team, try to spend a lot of time together. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done an, a really great offsite this year. We try to get into the office, everyone as a team, at least every other month or once a quarter. And I have to say, when you think about this year, for us at least, as compared to last year, we function together a lot better having seen and interacted with each other in person. Um, it's very difficult to get to know people through a screen. You don't get to assess body language. You don't really get to understand people's personalities. It's very difficult to understand sentiment through a screen as well. So I, I would just say just as a function of the way that humans interact with each other and just as a function of human nature, people are going to have to come back into the office at some point. Mm -hmm. I just think it's difficult to have a highly functioning team without some physical touch point. Mm -hmm. Um, That may actually be one of my contrarian views, but (laughs) um, I, I think it's really, really important to be able to interact with people in person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's certainly something to meeting people in person um, both in terms of getting to know them better, but also <clears throat> in terms of just building that rapport. Um, it's, you know, it, I think the pandemic has proven that we can get by with, you know, fully remote, but, you, you know, it's not without some loss. Absolutely. I even think um, if you just meet a person once, you interpret them via Zoom very differently because now you understand that person a little more. You understand, oh, if this person responds this way, they don't mean X, they probably mean Y, because I have a better sense for them. I think that's just very, very difficult to get when you only know a person from the shoulders up. Totally. It's it's just hard, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, you know, even if it's not every single day, like I said, we try to get together every other month or once quarterly, but it's just helpful for us all to be together as a team so that we just we just understand each other a bit more. Um, I also find that it makes people more comfortable working together when they've kind of gotten a sense for each other and have been able to laugh or share a moment together. I also have noticed that it reduces friction uh, within teams because people aren't necessarily taking things as personally. People know how to interpret certain comments or, again, kind of facial expressions or physical interactions that can, again, be very, very difficult when you just you don't know someone. So yeah, that's that's my view. I love it. Um, how about uh, tell us about your views on 
when you're evaluating startups or founders, like what do you look for <clears throat> beyond, or what do you look for, let's say, um, beyond the, you know, the, the basics um, and, and kind of ask differently, what's Im mo more important to you maybe when you're evaluating uh, a company or, or a founder than, you know, another VC or like a typical VC? Yeah, so being an investor inside of a large financial institution that's highly regulated, I cannot invest purely off of the founder and the idea itself. I would love to. There are some people out there that are very inspiring, um, but I just can't. We have a risk team that, that acts as a check and balance that kind of prevents us from doing that. So I would say we actually spend a lot of time on fundamentals. We want to see that the company is actually growing. We want to see that a company is generating revenue at a pace that we think is scalable. We want to see, for the most part, product market fit before we invest. And I'll also say we do look for founders that have demonstrated some level of expertise or experience or exposure in the space. We also can't necessarily invest in founders who have never done X before, but came up with this wonderful idea. It's just really difficult for us to underwrite. Again, even though we would like to, I would certainly like to, it's just not something we can do. So I would say we spend a lot of time on fundamentals. We also, if we're, if we're just thinking about people in general, something that's very important to me. I like integrity, that 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 really speaks to me when I think about the type of founders I want to be in a very long-term relationship with. We all know that that's what venture is. Um, I also think about founders who think, or I also preference, I should say, founders who think very big. Um, it's great if a business model is working for a select number of regions in the US or for the US overall. But one of the most inspiring conversations that I've had very recently with a founder is, is one who constantly, he constantly thinks about what his company will look like on a global scale. He thinks about it every day. He spends a lot of time talking to us about it, talking to other investors about it. He wants to talk to our equity research teams, our investment banking teams to really understand what different opportunities are. Founders like that are the types of founders I really love to work with and I think are, are generally interesting for, for everyone to work with. So I'd say that's, that's, kind of what we look for. Let me ask you one follow-up question on that, which is <clears throat> on the integrity side. Yeah. Um, obviously, when you're first getting to know so someone, a founder, yeah, they're often putting their best foot forward. Yes. Um, and, and, and showing you the things they want to show you. How do you kind of suss out or, or evaluate their integrity in those like early meetings? Yeah, that's really a good question. And I, and I will first preface this by saying I am not a natural skeptic at all. I start by giving everyone the benefit of the doubt. Um, I will, however, say that venture in general is more or less a dating game. It's getting to know people. And that's something we spend a lot of time doing. We have a ridiculous number of conversations with our founders and GPs before we move forward with an investment. Um, you know, I would say a few things that generally give me a little pause and something I've, I've said this on Twitter, so maybe you've seen this. I don't really love when founders punt questions. I don't really love when 
they don't know their businesses cold. In theory, a founder or a GP should know their business or their fund or their market much better than I do. So if I ask the question and it's not my company and you can't answer it, it just, it becomes a little bit questionable for me. Um, I would also say if a founder can't necessarily justify some of their assumptions around the projections in their deck, again, we spend a lot of time with financials. Mm -hmm. It calls in, it calls a lot of things into question for me or if things are very obviously hidden. So yes, a lot of founders do focus on narrative. A lot of founders do kind of try to avoid speaking to certain things in the deck or showing you certain things in the data room. But if you kind of come in and pitch and you already know that we generally don't invest in companies without some level of traction, we've shared that with you many, many times and you've kind of given us assurance that you're in a certain place revenue-wise or otherwise, but none of that material is in the pitch or that's not something you can speak to when you're speaking to our team. You know, it that's not necessarily someone that we want that we're excited to move forward with, I have to say. Um, let's see, other, other um, areas that I think about when I think about integrity. You know, it's not it's not often, but I have caught, if you will, founders in um, moments of dishonesty or kind of leading us in a different direction. Or, you know, I've been in a situation where there was a founder who said, you know, we can't get you guys in this time around because this investor took the entire round and there's no more allocation for you guys. Okay, you know, I'll be, you know, I'll walk away very disappointed, you know, tail between our legs or whatever. This is this is awful. Uh, but when the deal closes and the press goes out, there's like ten new investors. You know what I mean? And this particular founder, after kind of several emails that went ignored, came back and said, "Well, we would really love to partner with you. It's a fintech company. We would really love to partner with you. We think, you know, there are so many synergies here. Would love to kind of get some time on the calendar for us to spend time together." Of course the answer is no. You know what I mean? <laughs> of course the answer is no. You know, we you know, we we are people as well and this is very much a people business yes. and one of the things that um, we kind of live by, certainly I live by is just generally being good to people. And if you're not, you know, those aren't necessarily people I want to work with and um, I would say those aren't necessarily people most people want to work with. So those are things that I think about a lot. Um, you know, there are some moments where I do give people grace. Raising money is really hard. Uh, it's really, really difficult. Raising money for a company is certainly hard. Raising money for a fund, as you probably know, and I would certainly say is probably harder. It's generally a much longer journey. And I would say that our underwriting process is actually much more extensive for someone raising a fund than it is for someone raising a comp for someone raising financing for a company. So there are uh, circumstances where I've given people a lot of grace. There are, um, I can think of um, specific founders or GPs, I won't say which, um, who, you know, during the negotiation process were kind of tough 
to work with or, or sit on on the other side of the table from and you know frankly gave me a lot of pause and made me ask a lot of questions about whether or not we should be doing this but afterward you know it's kind of like okay well that's a part of the process these are people i really like and respect and want to to work with over the long term so um Yes, I do spend a lot of time thinking about integrity. I do give most people the benefit of the doubt and a lot of people a lot of grace as well. The, the word I tend to use a lot in thinking about this is is consistency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because, because it is so hard to get to know someone's, I mean, for me, yes, someone's integrity um, in a short period of time. Agreed. Um, and so, and I think I also suffer, uh, you know, from from giving people the benefit of doubt, um, especially earlier, you know, when I was first getting started in venture, of like, oh, well, they just, you know, they were busy or they were, you know, they they wanted to answer it in this way or whatnot. But like, <clears throat> what I really look for is like that consistency, because that, like, in my mathematical brain, lets me kind of make things a little bit more black and white of like, okay, they said they were going to email me this thing. It's, it's, you know, I haven't seen it. Or they said we could call, talk at this time. It's not there. And obviously things happen, but like I, I kind of track those things. Yeah. And that's for me is like a heuristic for integrity, right? Yeah. And, and what the relationship's going to look like for the long term. Absolutely. And then the second piece that you you talked about <clears throat> is around like seeing seeing the long-term vision, like knowing things cold, like that really resonates for me too, because I like to, and I think different VCs have different viewpoints on this, but like, I like to be able to, I like the feeling where I can ask a founder any question and not to say that they'll always have the right answer, but like they'll at least have thought about it. Yeah. Right? And they'll have said, well, I thought about that. Like, here are the three things I'm thinking about. Here are my, here's my current hypothesis. Here are the pros and cons. Like, I love that. Yeah. Um, whereas you can tell sometimes when you catch a founder and like they really haven't thought that through or they haven't done the math or they haven't um, done the work to back up, as you were saying, like their assumptions. Yeah. Um, and so so that's kind of another piece that that I, you know, try to triangulate around, you know, these amorphous concepts of like integrity and, um, you know, is a founder a great founder or a visionary or not? Absolutely. It's interesting you say that because one of the reasons I think about that so often is because I know what it looks like at this point. Right. You know, there's one founder who came in and and I have to say minority woman, um, solo founder, no co-founder. Already you're coming in with a lot of resistance, if you will, from from certain investors, not all. Um with that in what that means is that some people will specifically ask you questions to trip you up or to see what questions you won't be able to answer. This particular woman did not miss one. I mean, she was just on it and just very comfortable and self-assured and just knew her business so well. There was not a single thing she could not answer. And there are some who will be faced with a lot of questions and will just say, you know, I don't, I don't know, can circle back with you on that. That's something I appreciate as well. That's something I've had to do. And I appreciate when people do that a lot. Um, but I've seen what kind of this over-preparation looks like, which makes it easier to recognize when you're not seeing that. And I'm sure you've seen that too. I mean, you've seen far more deals than I have, which means that you've seen far more founders than I have. And, and I'm, I'm sure, again, you know what that looks like. 
I'll also say one of the things you mentioned is consistency. Yes, it's very important. Consistency is also hard. Um, you know, when you speak to people over a period of time, it also means that you get to know them under different conditions, which means that they, you know, on one particular call, they could come in hot, happy, excited, really energetic. And on one particular call, it could just be a rough day. They might have received three or four no's earlier that day or three or four calls that went bad. And you may be getting the worst side of that person. With that in mind, kind of bringing the exact same energy to each conversation is a little bit difficult, but you get to recognize consistency when you spend time engaging with a person over a long period of time and not just kind of having that one interaction or one call and making a decision there. Uh, that's something we're, we're very, very against. We don't participate in very fast moving rounds. We can't anyway, even if we wanted to. But one of the reasons we don't is because we, we want to get to know people over, over a series of interactions in a long period of time. Makes sense. And, and, you you sit in a pretty unique seat in that as you, as you mentioned you're evaluating founders as yeah. well as fund managers yeah. right yeah <clears throat> so the question would be what um what unique kind of insights or perspectives um has that allowed you to gain or 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 or, or ask differently like what's different about evaluating a founder versus a fund manager like what's that like yeah, so there are similarities in that you are, and you're a fund manager, so a lot of this you will know, but there are similarities in that this person is building a company. So, you know, that kind of long term vision and then the things that support that vision are very, very important. But I think where the conversation is different is that you're spending a lot of time talking to this person about how they invest. I actually have to say, you know, personally, I've probably learned more from my interactions with fund managers than from just purely looking at companies. You spend a lot of time looking at their portfolios, talking to them about their thesis, talking to them about the decisions they've made, talking to them about how they've made those decisions. I find those things very fascinating and very interesting. You spend a lot more time trying to understand how that person thinks and that's that's slightly different than kind of the conversations, at least for me, that you're having with with founders. I think that's a little bit different. I would also say, in in some ways, investing in a fund, especially when you're looking at a first time fund manager, and in some cases, you get first time fund managers that have varying levels of experience, or they're kind of. Um, Partnership is structured differently. Some people have more GPs. In some cases, there's a solo GP. Um, depending on what that structure looks like, investing in a fund can be slightly more risky. So you really need to be able to not only kind of understand how that person thinks, but also get a sense for how that person is going to make decisions going forward. And you, frankly, not only get that from speaking to that investor, but you get it from speaking to the founders they spent their time with or invested in. You get that from speaking to investors they've learned from and invested alongside. And even having conversations with those people, I personally have just learned a lot and, and 
that's probably been the aspect of my job that I've I've enjoyed the most to date, candidly. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it definitely seems like um, an amazing position to be learning because <clears throat> when you know a typical VC goes out and hangs out with another VC, yeah. Um, you don't get into that depth of like strategy. You get like the high level marketing of like, oh, we're you know investing in X, Y, Z. Let me tell you about all our amazing companies that just had write-ups or exits. Um, but you don't get into that detail of like, oh, here's like the the inside scoop on like our strategy and, and how, where we see the opportunities. Yeah. So I could definitely see how that would be a, 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 an amazing learning experience. What would you say, you know, it, you're looking for on the GP side, like like what are uh, kind of similar question as before is like, what do you, or, or you know, as your organization, what do you um, prioritize in terms of characteristics more so than maybe a typical LP? Yeah, I would say for us, since it's not the core part of our fund or our strategy, we are looking for funds that augment what we're trying to do. Um, for the most part, we don't, for example, invest in pre-seed companies. Our version of seed is for some people a series A. So we do like to invest in GPs that are really able to make really great bets in companies at the earliest stages of their life cycles. Very important to us. One of the other things that's also important to us is access to either um, communities or other sourcing channels that we would not otherwise have access to. If you look at some of the GPs that we've invested in to date, they have access that we don't. And that's something that's really, really important. They've spent a lot of time building relationships in um, whether it's different communities or um, different environments that gives them the opportunity to source companies that we wouldn't necessarily be able to source. You know, a lot of these um, GPs have unicorns, for example, in their portfolios that Either we weren't able, uh, either we weren't able to meet these people, or we couldn't necessarily get allocation in their rounds. And when we have the opportunity to get exposure to some of these deals by way of these funds, it makes a lot of sense for us. I would also say we think a lot about the expertise that we don't have that we want to see in the GPs that we invest in. So, for example. We now spend a lot of time in climate via our sustainability vertical. There is a limit to how deep we can go because there's a limit to what we know. And the same is true for certain aspects of healthcare as well, right? So it's valuable for us to spend time with GPs that have very deep expertise in that space, demonstrable expertise in that space. So we can say, all right, well, if we are evaluating a company, we really respect this person's opinion. We would really value this person's opinion. Um, this is someone that we would feel comfortable having on our team making this type of investment. In the absence of that, we're happy to invest in their fund and get exposure to these categories through them. Um, that's something that we that we think a lot about as well. So. Um, for the most part, is it is us kind of filling in our own gaps. It it's also us making sure that we are meeting our own kind of targets and and the missions that we've set for ourselves. I can give you 
a high level view of some of the things we we think about without kind of diving in too deep. But we think about a few things. Um, one, we certainly think about diversity overall. For us, we are not just committed to temporarily changing venture capital or temporarily kind of putting a bandage over the underfunded group situation. Mm. We want to change this over the long run. I certainly do. You know, when I initially got this job, I kind of came in guns blazing, if you will. This is what I want to see be very different. I think a lot of investors who look like us also come in with that point of view. But I would say um, one of the things that we think about a lot is how do we do this outside of just having this allocation for underrepresented founders? The research that I did coming in, and, and which I think is not lost in any of us, a lot of us have seen, is that when you invest in underrepresented investors, you naturally invest in underrepresented founders. Every single one of the partnerships that we're invested in has a very diverse portfolio. More than one has a diverse has a portfolio that's more diverse than ours. None of them set out diversity targets. And one of the reasons that happens is because there's a certain level of bias that you just don't have when you are an underrepresented person yourself, are accomplished yourself, and therefore don't necessarily question the accomplishments of someone else who looks like you or, or who looks different than what you're used to seeing. So for us, that's really important. And we think the, the biggest, the, the best way we can make a difference is making sure that the investors that we're empowering look a bit different. Um, I would also say again, you know, now that we're moving kind of away from seed and into series A, we still want to meet companies earlier. So we don't want to wait until their round is very, very competitive and we're having a difficult time getting in because they don't want to work with banks for them to know who we are. We want to be able to get some exposure to them earlier. We want to be able to tap into some of the some of the co-investment opportunities we'll, we'll have with the funds that we invest in. Um, I would say next to next to thinking about kind of our impact thing themes, co-investment opportunities and exposure to really great opportunities over the long term is something that is pretty high priority for us as well. Got it. Got it. <clears throat> so it sounds like, if I could paraphrase, it's access. Yes. It's um, knowledge yeah and it's uh and it's co-investment as well um which is kind of sort of related to access um and yeah i mean it on the on the point around you know diverse managers the way i sometimes describe it and have described it on this podcast is i think just all of us inherently have an affinity bias right oh and, yeah and you know i've i've dealt with <clears throat> and had interactions with a lot of racist people in the world but i think there's a lot of people who aren't racist and aren't you know, um, uh, sexist or, you know, have these biases, but we just all have this like internal clock of like, oh, that person reminds me of myself when I was younger. Absolutely. Right? And so, <clears throat> so again, I think given people the benefit of the doubt, um, maybe more so than I should, but <clears throat> what, what's, what's interesting is the data as you, as you referred to is, um, is pretty, 
you know, undisputed at this point, right? Whereas Kaufman fellows say female investors are twice as likely to invest in a female founder. Absolutely. Um, Harvard Business Review data says that diverse teams, venture capital teams, outperform homogeneous teams by 26 to 32 percent. Absolutely. And they even go into more detail to say it's not just about gender and, and race. It's also about like where people went to school. Did they work together previously? It's like this diversity of ideas and and, and different backgrounds and 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 uh, not having everyone look the same or or have the exact same life experience is is a major advantage and now it's quantifiable yeah so we we have a diverse set of viewpoints uh, one of one of the reasons that is important is because one homogeneous environments generally tend to lead people and kind of a very single direction and, it, and it, they tend to exclude a lot of other people. But it's also important because often our bias is not necessarily recognizable by ourselves. It's not obvious. Most of the time, it's not someone saying, I don't trust this group or I don't like this group and this is why I'm not moving forward. Most of the time, it looks like, hmm, did that person really go to that school? Does this person really have the experience that's needed to run this type of company. Most of it looks like that. And so you need someone else in the room to say, well, why do you, why, why would you think that? Why, why do you think that way? Why wouldn't that person be qualified to run this company? Or look at all of these incredible things that this person has done. Or look at the access that this person has. Why, why doesn't that have some value? And so I, I think it's hard to get that when you don't have diverse perspectives in a room and everyone looks and thinks the same. Um, so I, I would say that's why why diverse perspectives and and why non-homogeneous teams are really important to me. Right. It helps you uh, question your own assumptions. assumptions. And, and well, why do I why did I assume that? And other people aren't assuming that. Like, let me let me dig into that and figure out what my own unconscious biases are. Absolutely. All of us have them. Um, and sometimes uh, we need to be called out on them by other people. And it's difficult to you know, be in an environment where that's possible. And so to the extent that you can, I think it's, I think it's important to you. I certainly prefer to be in environments where people think differently from me and people can say, well, why don't you look at X this way or look at X that way? Or why would you make this assumption? And I've just learned even in our own team meetings when we're kind of prosecuting different ideas or companies or founders, it's helpful for us to ask each other, why do you think that way? Or what do you think of this person based on X, Y, or Z? So, uh, Let me ask you one more question, <clears throat> and then I want to turn the conversation to you, which is, um, so I work with the Black VC Emerging Manager Initiative, which you know, um, and so I'm in contact with a lot of like mid-career VCs, right, who don't have the perspective you have of being on the other side of the table and, and, and evaluating emerging managers. Yep. So what advice would you give them in terms of how to know when they're ready to start their own fund? That is a very good question. Um, I'll answer that a few different ways. One, I think it's I think it's more how do you know when you're ready to target institutions? Not necessarily when you're ready to start your own fund. 
anyone can start their own fund tomorrow and go after high net worth individuals or foundations who are really focused on being catalytic as long as they have a very unique thesis and point of view and not necessarily even a track record, but some level of access to certain um, investment categories or themes or people, et cetera. Not everyone can do that and come to a bank like us and ask for money. Um, I would say a few things are important. One, do you have a track record that speaks for you? If you aren't in a room, can someone look at your track record and say, that person has invested in these types of companies, that person has done deals, that person has gotten reps in, and I, I trust those deals that that person has done, and therefore I would I would invest alongside that person going forward. There are a lot of people that can't say that, and I, I think it's okay. I think if that's the case, it just means maybe you should go out and, and try to get a few more reps in before you try to raise a fund. And that doesn't necessarily mean going to work at a venture capital firm. Sometimes it just means maybe you need to do a little bit of angel investing or finding other ways to get some exposure to companies. I would also say one thing that's really important is asking yourself, is your point of view that unique? Um, often when I talk to fund managers, they don't realize, I talk to more fund managers than they do, right? And you know that as an investor, you talk to more founders than the average founder does. So there are a lot of things that are absolutely not new to you. So for example, and I'll, I'll go back to two things actually, diversity and climate, which were um, both very big themes over the past several years. There are a lot of climate funds being raised right now. There are also a lot of funds focused on investing in diverse founders right now. Um, that's not enough, right? You know, when someone comes to me and tells me, you know, you know, these are what the numbers are, less than 2% of these founders are getting invested in and served, and we plan to do that, no one else is. It's kind of like, well, no, a lot of other people are. Uh, how are you doing that differently? So I think really making sure that your point of view is very, very unique and you have this disproportionate access or unfair advantage. If you don't believe that you have that yet, it may not necessarily be the right time, or you should probably spend a little bit more time figuring that out. And I think I think it's relatively easy to do. I think it's having more conversations with LPs before you need them. You know what I mean? In the same way that if you're a founder raising capital for your company, you should probably have a few conversations with investors before you actually need to raise money. Right. Anyone can reach out to me on Twitter or LinkedIn and say, hey, I'm just I'm really curious about what you guys are looking for. Very easy conversation to have. And once you have had that conversation, then you can go back and say, okay, let me spend a little bit more time preparing X, Y, or Z or let me target different LPs, which is also something a lot of early fund managers should think about as well. And, and also a conversation that I have with a lot of early fund managers. Great answers, great answers. Um, and, and a great offer for absolutely fund managers out there. Yeah, I will say, I will say, you know, <clears throat> Like like other investors and LPs, I do get a lot of 
inquiries no. and, I, and I am really busy. So I do think it is very important to at least say, these are all of the things that I have done. Right. What do you think? Right. You know what I mean? Not like, well, I've been noodling on, can you kind of help me put this right. together? I'm, 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 <laughs> I got this half-baked idea. I exactly. just want to like pick your brain on. Exactly. Like, okay. It's yeah. like, yeah. Call, you know. call me in three months. When it's it, more basic. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, you know, is, is there something I can solve for here? Sure. You know, so sure. um, I think about things like that, but I do try to make myself as available and accessible as possible. Right. Um, because once upon a time, once upon a time, um, investors who look like me were not able to reach out to investors who look like me. So right. it's really um, it's really important for me to try to make myself as available as possible to the extent that I can. Right. Okay. So emerging fund managers out there, make sure your <laughs> idea is, is fully baked or at least mostly baked and uh, maybe mention the Epic Human podcast. That might help too. Yes. Um. Yes. <laughs> That might help. All right. That will help, actually. So let's move the conversation uh, back to you. And I, I like to start with, like, you know, you grew up in Michigan. Like, tell us about what growing up was like for you, how you're the way you came up, the way you were raised um, kind of made you part, part of the person you are today. Yeah. Um, so specifically, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan for most of my life. I was born in Detroit, Michigan. Um, I did kind of move back and forth between the suburbs and inner city Detroit growing up, um, which I, I also think shaped a lot of who I am today. Um, so I moved between um, Detroit and a suburb called Farmington Hills, Hills and another suburb called Grand Link, Michigan. Um, you know, childhood was like it, I think it was for most kids. Um, I spent a lot of time outside. Um, like I think most kids do. Um, I will say because I moved a lot, I got used to meeting new people very quickly, very often. It's just, which I think has been a very, um, I think is a quality that has helped me quite a bit in life, certainly in venture when you kind of have to meet new people all the time. Um, I think it kind of forced me to be comfortable um, making new friends, if you will, or saying hello or introducing myself or really trying to get to understand and know people. Um, I also think it forced me to more often than not go into conversations with fewer assumptions than I think most people do. So for the most part, um, I'm human, so I always have opinions like most people do, but I generally go into conversations blank slate. I really just want to get to know this person. And I think a lot of that is kind of being forced to do that by moving a bit when I was younger. So um, there's that. There's definitely uh, a kind of a Midwest kind of characteristic, too, of being yeah. kind of down to earth and more more humble, more grounded. My wife's from the Midwest, so oh, I yeah. can say that. <laughs> good, good. You know, I, I would say that's very true. So we are nice people. <laughs> Just like it's not, and I'm trying to be nice. It's not a I'm going to be nice to this person. It is I'm nice, not because the other person has done anything great or um, something that is that that is important to me. It's I'm nice because that's who I am. You know what I mean? I'm I'm a nice person. I'm a good person. I think that's what you 
what you should be and who you should be. And I think that is a very Midwest thing. Um, so uh, I, I will say that is um, that was an interesting part about growing up in Michigan. Um, I find that not everyone everywhere is that way. So, <laughs> and, and I'm sure you've probably noticed that as well. But um, yeah, no. But the where it became um, really resonant for me was uh, so I grew up in the New York area, so you know a lot more guarded, defensive, yes. um, cynical um, by nature, <laughs> but. Uh, I got to marry uh, my wife, who's from Ohio, yeah. very Midwest, um, spent a lot of time out there, lived in North Dakota, lived in Colorado, and then <clears throat> moved back to Boston or, you know, to the to the Northeast. And when I the day I realized that I changed a little bit was I was in the grocery store and there was this like older woman who was like trying to like reach something. And I was like, oh, can I get that for you? And she just goes. <laughs> Do you work here? And I said, no. And she was like, she gave me this weird look, like, why are you even talking to me? Like, like, is this a scam? I was like, oh yeah, I'm I'm back, I'm back on the East Coast. You know, when I moved to New York City, that was my experience early. I remember um a friend told me, Chris, you can't go around smiling at everyone. People are going to think you're crazy. Like you just cannot do that. In Michigan or in the Midwest in general, when you make eye contact with a person, you smile. That's just the way you greet someone. That's just what you're supposed to do. So that's second nature for me. Um, but I did that in New York City or would tap someone to tell them it was their turn in line or something in New York City. And as you probably know, people are just kind of like, whoa, that's weird. What's, <laughs> what's wrong with you? Um, but that's fine. Yeah. I'll, I'll keep being being nice to folks. Uh and tell me about, um, you know, you were a journalism major, you spent some time in media at NBC uh, and The Economist. Like, tell me about that, like, chapter of your life. And, and then and then you ended up going to banking. Like, what, what about that kind of transition for you? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I don't know that my 17 or 18-year-old self, I was 17 when I entered college and was very sure about this journalism path, would have chosen um, banking, maybe not even venture capital. Um, I'll say what was interesting about journalism for me was the fact that I loved reading and writing and I loved meeting people and I was excited to kind of travel and learn about the world. Hard stop. That's what made journalism very interesting. When I kind of got into the industry and learned that it was slightly different then what I expected, I learned about um, how much influence kind of the business side of the house has over the editorial side of the house. I learned about how relatively biased a lot of the media is. Um, I, I got a little, um, I got a little jaded and, and decided, you know, this isn't necessarily the most exciting thing I can be doing. Um, I'll also say just moving to New York City and you meet all of these people working in finance and working in even venture capital and doing really interesting things. Uh, just having conversations with a lot of people kind of empowered me to think about changing my path. And to date, I have no regrets about that. Um, one of the things that I probably would have done is gone into venture sooner. Um, I made the same mistake that a lot of people make in that, you know, I thought 
you know, I had to go into banking graduating from business school because my experiment, my experience, excuse me, before business school was relatively atypical or non-traditional. Um, I've kind of learned as time has gone on, gone on that that's absolutely not true. I should have gone straight into venture and leveraged my experience before going into business school. You know, the stuff that is non-traditional is actually really, really interesting. And it's what makes you a more interesting investor. It's what differentiates you, not necessarily trying to be the same or like everyone else. So lessons learned um, on the road of life, but that's how I made the transition from media to finance and ultimately venture capital. Right. I mean, this is one of the things I love about VC and startup and the startup world is that people come from all different backgrounds. Absolutely. Um, and there's no like one size fits all. Oh, you have to have two years in this, two years in that. Um, and uh, and journal. You're actually the last uh, podcast we did was with Molly Wood. I don't know if you know her. She's at uh, This Week in Startup. She's a co-host oh, of yeah. This Week in Startups with yeah. Jason Calacanis. Yeah. And um, and she has a whole journalism background um, and media background that and just started in venture now. Um, and uh, well, as of a year ago. And uh, and like you, I think brings a totally different perspective than a lot of the same people who came from you know all the you know more traditional industries. So I think that's amazing. Um, and and I'm so glad you you talked about feeling you have to do A to go to B. And I hope like some of the uh, you know MBAs and that I that I coach um, are listening because I always preach this because you know especially like MBAs like ambitious people are, are always thinking about optionality and like, okay, like yes. how can I do A so that it gives me the option to do B or C or D when the reality is like, if you really want to do B, go do B. Like 100%. spend all your effort and energy going and doing B and not necessarily you'll get there right away, but you'll find that like that intermediate step and you'll get there faster. Absolutely. Because cause often what happens is people spend all this time and energy doing A they're like, I hate this, but at least I can finally get to B. And then they get to B and they're like, oh, I don't like this either. <laughs> like, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Or, you know, a lot of people that say I'm going to do X or Y for two years end up doing it much longer. And so you end up, end up wasting a lot of time and then you come and do the thing that you want to do and you're behind a bit. Um, you know, obviously life is long and the idea of being behind is totally subjective. But when you think about what you could have learned or the reps you could have gotten in, you know, you realize um, that there was a, there is potential has potentially been a little bit of wasted time there. So I agree with you. Um, I think I think people should just go do the thing sooner rather than later. Go do it. <laughs> yeah. Carpe diem. Absolutely. Absolutely. So. Krista, tell us, what is something you believe that is uh, controversial? Maybe other people don't necessarily believe it. That's a very good question. And um, I would say other people that are starting out in venture probably don't believe this, but um, I actually don't think you should try to model yourself after whatever venture investor you admire or inspires you or respect especially if you're a person who is different in some way. So whether it's you know race or gender or lived experience, et cetera. And one of the reasons that I think that is because 
if if the way that that person was doing things or if the way that people in venture have been doing things for decades was working, why would we be where we are today where some people are left out? And I think particularly people that have unique perspectives or experiences, I think it's important to ask yourself, is it working for you? And if it's not, you may want to think about what type of investor do I need to be or would I like to be to make sure that things are different for founders going forward? And so I, I sometimes see, and I've 100% fallen victim to this, um, a lot of investors that are early in their careers emulating other investors that they admire who have been doing this for a long period of time. And it's kind of like, well, if your team wanted um, a white guy with a decade or two of investing experience who has only invested in X type of company, I assure you they would not have hired you. You know what I mean? And you have to think about, well, what about my experience is unique to venture? What about my perspective is valuable? What about it is different? You know, if we're trying to make venture capital better overall, even if it's not coming from a very altruistic place, if you just want to see venture capital evolve, you need to have different perspectives and you need to think about how your perspective can kind of affect the founders that you hope to invest in or affect the industry overall. So my contrarian view is is not to try to be like the investors that you admire. Um, You can certainly admire them and you can certainly be inspired. And when it comes to analysis or evaluating a company or doing diligence, there are some things that do not change. But from a perspective point of view, I think it's important to tap into your own experiences and try to think about how you are unique and different and bring your own value. Right. I mean, and and that can be uh, expanded more broadly into just life in general. Absolutely. I mean, that's something people talk about is like there's no other Crystal Williams Colette on Very Earth, true. Very true. and and you are you, and you are the best at being you. Very true. <clears throat> Very true. Um, the other the other thing that reminds me of is um, I'm not sure if you saw this, but uh, Peter Fenton was was interviewed recently. Okay, and um, someone asked him a question, uh, which was which was why do venture capitalists um, get worse as they get older, like at, at investing? Yeah. First off, the premise I'd never really heard before, but you could imagine that that's true. Yeah. And he had a pretty thoughtful answer, which was, um, and I'm paraphrasing, but <laughs> it was it was basically um, when you're earlier in your career, you you have a little less ego and you're more likely to go hunt out people and make yourself look dumb. I always say my job is asking dumb questions, right? And yeah. and kind of going through that exploratory process and figuring out your your pattern matching. Um, whereas what he's saying is, you know, when you're more established, you sort of assume that the best people are going to find you, right? And yeah. so you don't have to do that outbound. And you sort of assume that if people aren't finding their way to you, they're probably not, you know, the best anyway. Absolutely. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And, and then I think the reality is like we are 
like our world is constantly changing, right? And the, what worked for venture investing 10 years ago, or, or even two years ago, absolutely, right? Is it's sort of irrelevant. Absolutely. Um, and so the, the rules of the game are constantly changing. Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's um, that inflexibility. I actually see that a lot. Um, so I, I sometimes will have conversations with investors who have done this for a long time, even if it's, you know, we have people um, on, our, or on our team as well who've been doing this for a very long time as well. And sometimes, you know, people that have seen a lot of companies and have been in the industry for a decade or more are very sure of their ideas. They have a lot of conviction in what they believe they know in spite of the fact that the world is continuing to change every day. So circumstances are not the same. The variables are not the same. The players are not the same. And so I think that puts you in a position to make a decision based on a different set of information or a different set of data points, which I believe is why investors get worse over time. I think flexibility is really important. I think open-mindedness is really important. And I think curiosity is very important. And a lot of people get less curious over time because they believe they've seen everything there is to be seen. So um, I, I, I would say that probably is true. Um, I think for the most part that is true. And I, I also see generally um, a lot of investors later in their career aren't necessarily doing the investing anymore. So they're sending out fresher VCs with a different perspective to go find the new and interesting companies. I would say the unfortunate part of that model, however, is that those investors are still making a lot of decisions on whether or not those companies are funded. So there is a little bit of friction between the fresh perspective and the old perspective there. <laughs> right. um, but, you know, I don't know. That's how I, I see things. Right, right. And um, f famously, uh, <clears throat> from what I understand and hear, uh, Bill Gurley is a good counterexample to that, yeah. where it's like I've heard he will really do like roll up his sleeves and uh, do all his own work. Um, yeah. At least that's 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 what I hear. Um, let me ask you another question. Um, what kind of personalities give you energy and like really inspire you? And what kind of personalities like kind of suck energy from you? Oh, that's a really good question. Um... That's a very good question, and I'm happy to answer it. Um, I like enthusiasm. Um, I like also people that are, uh, we kind of talked about kindness a little bit earlier in the conversation. I personally have a no asshole rule. That's my personal value, and I generally am energized by being around good people, by being around people who have an optimistic view of the world, who have an optimistic view of other people and things and are curious and excited to learn about other people and things. I would say the type of, of people or personalities that drain my energy are people that are overly critical or overly negative and to some degree natural skeptics. Um, I, I don't necessarily, um, I mean, I, I can get along with just about anyone, but I don't necessarily like to share space with those people or that energy. Um, that's just not what I love. But 
back to the positive side of that, the people that do energize me are our people, again, that are, are optimistic and kind and open and curious and enthusiastic about what they're doing and the world in general. I hope that was. That's perfect. Okay. That's perfect. No, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I see very much eye to eye on that. Yeah. This is a big one. Okay. Okay. Feel free to pass on this okay. if you want. Okay. What would you like to say about your life when it is coming to a close? Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, no softballs here. <laughs> not a softball. Um, you know, there is this quote that I think most people have heard of um, that says, you know, when I, at the end of my life, when I stand before God, I want to be able to say, I used everything that you gave me. And I think about that a lot. Um, that is what I want to be able to say when I am on my deathbed. Um, I think there is a lot more for me to be doing from that perspective. And and I feel like I'm leaning into that even more so in my life now than maybe I have been before. Um, but I, I would say I, I want to be able to stand before God and, and say I, I used everything that I was given. Um, I would also say, um, you know, there's on the flip side of that, there's a Drake line that goes, my funeral is going to be lit because of how I treated people. And I believe that's the case with me. Um, I want people to say, you know, whether I liked everything she said or didn't, she was a good person. She was 100% a good person, 11 out of 10, you know, really, really great human, epic human, maybe. <laughs> Um, but I, I, I want people to say that she treated people well. That's really, really important to me. Um, you know, the other stuff, uh, family and all of that stuff is very important to me as well. Um, but those are, those are two things that came to mind, come to mind. One thing I think about sometimes is, um, you know, when I'm having daily interactions with people yeah. is uh, it, it's, it's somewhat morbid, but we're on this topic, but is like, okay, who's, who's that, who's going to show up to my funeral? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's something I think about sometimes too, because I, you know, so for example, I have cousins, right. Who I don't talk to that much. Right. But I know for a fact they're going to be at my funeral. Yeah. Right. If, you know, assuming I, I go first, which I probably <laughs> will. Um, but that there's something to that. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's something to, um, and the same goes for friendships and, you know, and people that you work with, you know, very closely. Yeah. And um, it kind of helps center the the whole viewpoint of like relationship building and, you know, what matters. Absolutely. Um, you know, it sounds morbid, but I think everyone thinks about that. Um, I think everyone, one, wants to feel like people are going to be at their funeral and also want to get a sense for who will. And I have to say, um, I think one of the cool things about going through life, and I just had a birthday, which was really, really nice. But I think one of the cool things about going through life is that just thinking about that forces you to reevaluate kind of what you're doing, your relationships, how you engage with people, et cetera. And I think as time goes on, you get a lot more sure 
about who will be at your funeral and and what that event will look like. So um, I think it's a good thing to think about. I think it's a nice, nice way to kind of force you to reassess what you do on a daily basis today and how you engage with people today as well. So that's, that's a, my view on it. That's I think that's a beautiful place to, to stop, although I know we could go for another few hours. Um, no, but I know you great. have a you have a hard <laughs> stop. So so let me um, l- let's just wrap with um, maybe you could just tell people like what's the best way for people to find you, sure. to follow you and, and the City Impact Group? Sure. I'm pretty liberal with my email address. So I hopefully won't regret this, but I'm happy to share it. I'm just Krista.Williams at city.com. Uh, C-H-R-I-S-T-A is how you spell my first name. I'm on Twitter uh, at Krista W. Collette, so C-H-R-I-S-T-A-W-C-O-L-L-E-T-T. Um, I'm, I'm accessible there. Uh, feel free to reach out to me. I'm on LinkedIn as well, um, Krista Williams. Uh, you can send me a note. Um, I, I frankly don't really look at requests very much anymore, um, but when there's kind of a note attached, I generally, I generally respond to people, so that's the best way to reach me. Great. And the City Impact Fund is www.city.com slash impact fund. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. (laughs) Wonderful. Um, We're also, we are redoing our website uh, because we realized we need a little bit, needed a little bit of a redo. So um, you can certainly take a look at it today. You will be inspired a few months from now with what it looks like. So we'll share that. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Krista, for being on the podcast. It was uh, a joy to, to speak with you. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you.